started a new series intended to give us some shape on uh, spiritual formation through this transition that we're in. Um, I think we can learn a lot from Abram and Sarai or Abraham and Sarah, don't you? I think they, uh, I think they have a lot to teach us, especially because God called Abram and Sarai out of everything that they'd ever known on this journey to somewhere. And he gave them this new purpose that they would be a part of God's uh, plan and purpose to bless the world. And all they really had to go on was God's word. In some ways, that's exactly where we are, right? As individuals and as a church, the world around us is changing. Whether we like it or not, some of the ways things were before COVID or whatever else, or even, even in the life of the church, is, it's, it's changed. And God is calling you as individuals and as a church to step out in faith on a journey to somewhere, calling you to continue to do this work of advancing the cause of Christ, to advance the gospel in Durham and beyond, in and through your lives, right? And all you have to go on is God's word. So last week we started in Genesis chapter 11, verse 27, and, uh, and through Genesis 12, uh, verse 9. And that gave us some background on Abram and Sarai, right? Like one of the things we discovered about the two of them is that Abram was 75 and she was 65. And we can uh, sort of think back, well, they lived longer in those days, which seems to be fairly miraculous. But nevertheless, that's uh, 75 and 65. God's calling them to leave everything they've known and to step into something new. And he also gave them this set of I wills. There were six of them. They were equivalent to basically God's promises to them. As he's calling to this new purpose of their lives, he gives them these promises. We'll circle back to those in a minute because I think they bear repeating and they should sort of mark some things for us. So today I'm going to read Genesis chapter 12, starting at verse 10. We'll go to Genesis 13, verse 4. Before I do, though, I will say um, this is not normal text for Mother's Day. <laughs> and, uh, and so if you're expecting that, you will be surprised. Um, I'm, I am honestly a little sensitive about Mother's Day. Uh, uh, I know that it's a, a day that carries a lot of emotion with it. Um, my wife, uh, Sherry, and I, for many years, uh, wrestled and struggled with uh, not being able to have children. And so we I understand sort of carry that to this day and then also this sense of celebration. And so I'm sensitive about what Mother's Day brings. And, um, and so I feel in one sense like this reading this text today is a little insensitive. However, there is something powerful that happens in the life of Sarai in this text where God rescues her. And we're able to see that this, this promise of the covenant, this promise that God is giving Abraham is not just for him. It's for her as well. This is a powerful moment in her life, and there's more than meets the eye here. So I just want to make you aware of that. Let me, uh, let me read our text for us. It's Genesis chapter 10, Genesis 12, starting at verse 10. Let me read it for us. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, Abram said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, which he should have stopped right there, right? That would have been enough, but he didn't. 
And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Oh, brother. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this that you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. And so Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Let me pray. Lord, help us as we look into your word. Help it to do uh, that work within us that you long to do. Lord, I pray that nothing that I would say or do or have said or left unsaid or undone would in any way at all hinder the work of your spirit. We ask that you do this within us, that we might be more like Jesus and may make him known. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is one of those uh, places in the Bible uh, that make me say, dude, no, right? Uh, David and Bathsheba, there's another one, Samson and Deliah, uh, Abraham, right here, dude, no. This is, it's shocking, truly, isn't it? Uh, how quickly Abram and Sarai, by default, go from uh, faith in God's I wills to their own solution in the midst of this really tremendous life-changing situation, right? It's really uh, stunning, and you might remember in Genesis last week when we looked at uh, Genesis 12, 1 to 9, uh, God's first recorded interaction with Abram, uh, he gives he, uh, and, uh, Sarai this divine imperative where they are to, they're to go from all that they've ever known uh, to a land that he will show them. And then he gives them uh, this, these, uh, these promises, these I wills. He says, I will, and, and then you will be this blessing. I will do these things and you will be a blessing to the world. Uh, he gives them this new purpose. And so they're, they're told to go from family, their, the land, their kindred. And in a sense, they're being told to move away from their former lives, right? We, we read in Joshua that they're coming from this idol-worshiping background, right? So they're, they're moving from this, moving from polytheism to monotheism. I mean, it, that's not an insignificant thing in the life of Abram and Sarai. There's, there's a lot happening here. Uh, and so he, he gives them the I wills. Do you remember the I wills in, in Genesis 12, 1 to 9? Do you remember that? Six times God tells them they're these equivalent to his promise that through them he's going to bless the world. And, and as we sort of just kind of looked at in Galatians, that's this indicator of the gospel because this blessing to the world is going to be in the person and the work of Jesus, right? And Abram and Sarai have a role in that. This is this powerful thing. And he gives them, God gives them these I wills as a part of that. In Genesis 12, 1 to 3, we, we see that God says, I will give you a land. 
And that's important, right? He's taking them from a place. He's going to give them this place of being, which is important, right? I mean, I'm from Upper East Tennessee. I'm from the mountains. I'm proud of that. Like, I have this land, right? I love that, right? You all have that in your own life, that, that significant thing. I'll make you a great nation, right? Remember, Sarai is barren at this moment. And so he, God is saying, I will make you a great nation. I'll give you a family, a tribe. There's, you're going to be connected, not just to the land, but to the people. To this, And I'll bless you. Meaning, I, I'm, gonna, I'm not only going to give you this thing. I'm going to give you what you need to flourish in it. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great so that you will be a blessing, right? Here's this indicator, this foretaste of the gospel. You will be a blessing to all nations, to the families of the world, to the earth. And, and I, will, uh, I, will make, um, I will bless those who bless you, those who are in alliance with you. I'll bless them. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless others around you. And those who dishonor you, those who take you lightly, I will curse. So God is saying, not only will I provide for you, but I will be your protector. I will be your defender. All right, that's, those are significant things. Significant. And at the end of uh, this story in Genesis 12, 1 to 9, they seem heroic because they get up and they leave everything and they move on in faith. It's a powerful thing. that they, 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 and, they, and they go to the land that God shows them and they worship. They build an altar there. They have this interaction with God and they're on the mountaintop. And it's awesome until this life-changing event suddenly happens. The, the world changes around them. Their lives change. Everything changes. All, right on the hills of this mountaintop moment, a famine enters the land. It's amazing how quickly life events or changes in their situation lead them to finding their own solution, right? It didn't, uh, it's a solution that really doesn't seem to take God's purposes, his plan, or even his promises into account, does it? It's interesting to note that in, in Genesis right here, that there's no indication at all that God said, go from this land that I've just given you. There's no indication that they cried out to the name of the Lord in this moment. They didn't seem to call on the name of the Lord. God's promises didn't seem to factor in to their decision at this moment to leave the land that he had just taken them to. Maybe, maybe they did. Maybe they did call on the Lord. Uh, maybe, maybe God told them to go. And maybe the writer of Genesis just forgot and left that detail out. But I don't think so. I want to shake my head at them in a sort of pious, self-righteous sort of way, you know? Ugh, good. But actually, I think this whole thing is, um, it serves as a mirror for God's people. A reflection of real people in a real world facing real and, and a very serious issue. And trying to understand what it means to be a people of faith, in the face of all that, when these changes uh, loom so large, and they're huge, they're, they're huge changes, right? I've never experienced a famine. In fact, um, I don't think I've ever been too far away from a Chick-fil-A very much of my life, and, uh, and I love Chick-fil-A, so when the hunger pains hit, Sunday's a rough day, right? For Abram and Sarah, though, this famine comes in, right? And, and it's that thing, that life-changing moment, that's thing, right? And it and all of a sudden they're wobbly. And they start to come up with a, we have to come up with a solution. Their fear and anxiety over this really serious thing, uh, they're no longer thinking about the I wills, I don't, I don't think. I haven't experienced the famine, but I, I have experienced the uh, unsettledness of a, of a pandemic. Haven't you? And the anxiety that that creates in that moment. 
and how it factors into a lot of decisions that we make. I have experienced life-changing events in my own life. My wife could tell you uh, about moments of that in my life when I felt really shaken uh, and started making decisions. And I'd like to say that I, I can look back and say, yes, in those moments I was truly faithful, but I was not. Um, that I factored in. I could say I prayed, but I didn't really earnestly pray, maybe. I sort of prayed, but then I acted. I came up with my own solution because these life-changing moments, man, they, well, they can sort of... It's a strong temptation, even for people of faith, when faced with the sort of life changes that come at us, that we try to start to figure things out on our own, and we don't necessarily really do God's things, God's ways, right? We kind of do. And so this text is sort of a mirror. It kind of holds up. Like, I, I might want to shake my finger at Abram in this moment, but the reality is, oh, no, I, I can relate to it much too closely. And it's amazing how one step away from God's I wills and the life of Abram leads to another and another. And we get pretty far down that road. And so Abram... And Sarah decide the solution to the famine problem is to leave the land that God had given them, even though he said, I will bless you, I'll provide for you. I have this plan and this promise and this purpose that involves you, that actually involves the redemption of the world. I'm not going to let a famine stop it. But they solved this problem on their own, and their their solution was they're going to sojourn in Egypt. Now, this idea, this word sojourn, is really helpful because it, it tells us this is a temporary solution to what they consider a temporary problem. But there's other places in the Bible where a sojourn was 10 years. Read about Ruth and Naomi. That was a 10-year sojourn. It's a temporary step away from God's I wills. We're, gonna, we're just going to step away just for a little while, this sojourn. And so they, they go and they find themselves in Egypt. And it seems like it was much too late for Abram to realize, oh, wait a minute, now we're in real danger. Because it was true, it was the case in those days where powerful men, even kings, would sometimes take the wives of other men. Think about David and Bathsheba. Uh, It happened. And so Abram assumes that Pharaoh's ethics are not as high as his own, he assumed wrongly, and that when he saw the beauty of Sarai, that he would take her as his own wife and that his life was in jeopardy. What a terrible thing. That was his reasoning, right? In verse 13, he says he wants Sarah to to tell them that he's their brother and sister so that it may go well with me because of you, that my life may be spared for your sake. Now, truly, technically, she is his half-sister, which doesn't help the story at all. (laughs) But he's really trying to preserve himself, right? In his own mind, it sure seems like that this promise, this plan, this whole thing only involves him. But we find out really quickly that that's not the case. That God's plan and purpose and promise were involved Sarai as much as Abram. And so he's trying to protect himself. And so sure enough, Pharaoh uh, finds out about Sarai and, and he sends some folks and they bring all this wealth to Abram and they take Sarai to his home. Uh, verse 16 tells us that they deal, uh, he deals very well with Abram uh, for, because of Sarai's sake and he gives him sheep and oxen and male donkeys and male servants and female servants and female donkeys and camels. And so now uh, Abram is uh, wealthier than it were, was. And, and it seems like this is, a, this is really a terrible situation. You realize that, right? There's nothing that Abram can do in this moment. Nothing. 
What's he going to do? How's he going to get Sarai back? What is he going to do? He's powerless. He can do nothing. His solution has basically put the whole thing in jeopardy. He can't go storming into Pharaoh's house. He can't go, wait, 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 actually, she's my wife. That's great. He's really, really messed this up. And then we have this great verse in verse 17. It's powerful. Verse 17 says, but the Lord. That phrase should be in every Christian's vocabulary. I was on a highway to hell, but the Lord, right? I had really messed up, but the Lord. My marriage was in shambles, but the Lord. God intervenes. It's the story of the gospel. It's right here. But the Lord, verse 17, afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. There's a few things that just sort of jump out at me. The first is that phrase, but the Lord, because it's this telling of the gospel. But the Lord intervenes on our behalf. Foolish, (laughs) sinful, the Lord intervenes, gives us this hope. Even when it's our own fault, especially when it's our own fault. Second thing is this whole section here begins to sort of unfold how God keeps his promises. It's this messy situation that only God can fix. Only God can intervene here and fix this thing that Abram has created. And so God keeps his promises. We see it unpacked. As weird as it is, when Pharaoh dumps all this wealth, God is like in the midst of this because he's being blessed. Abram is being blessed. God promised him, I will bless you. And here's part of this blessing. As weird as it might be, here it is. As weird as and troubling as it is, when God inflicted plagues on Pharaoh, he's keeping his promise to Abram. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who dishonor you. As difficult as it is for us, even in this moment, God is keeping his promises, his I wills to Abram. He's showing him in the midst of all this. As hard as it is for us to wrap our heads around that, And the third thing that's important here, that's really rich here, is it tells us that God did this because of Sarai, right? She is very much a part of this promise and plan and purpose that God has to bless the world. Yes, Abram will be the father of many nations, but she will be their mother. She plays a rich part in this. It's part of God's redemptive plan as he's redeeming us back from the fall in the garden. It involved both man and woman, humanity. God is redeeming them both. And he's using Abram and Sarah here to do this work. This promise wasn't just for Abram. It was for both of them. And it's powerful. And it gives me hope, right? It gives me hope, this whole thing. But God intervenes because I mess up all the time. I have walked with Jesus for a long time and I mess up all the time. Abram at least had the excuse that he's coming out of a pagan background. I don't have that excuse. And yet God intervenes because he is intent on keeping his plan and his promises and his purposes, even in their foolish, foolish thing. But there's one other thing that troubles me. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. It bothers me because I can't help but think that it was, I can't think about, can't help but think about Abram's responsibilities here, right? It makes me realize that when God's people uh, 
try to figure out things on our own and don't really include God's plans and purposes and his promises when they try to solve things on their own, that it has an impact, a consequence on others and ourselves. There are consequences here. Even in the midst of all this of God intervening, there are consequences. While God keeps his promises, our actions have consequences for others and ourselves. We have responsibility in the midst of all that. I think if this text is meant to hold up a mirror when we go through life changes, when there's things going on and we try to figure out our own ways forward, if we figure out things that may or may not fully include God's plan and purposes and promises, it could be consequences. Perhaps we don't always do God's things God's ways. But Abram, he was allowed to keep um, all this spoil, basically, from the Egyptians. And in one way, we read it and go, wow, he just sort of walked away scot-free. Except I don't think so. I don't think so. I I think that there were some relational things that happened here, too, right? Um, I mean, if I know uh, relationships between uh, husband and wife, there were some relational things that happened here. And maybe some of the spoils that they carried away were a constant reminder. In fact, uh, verse 16 makes this, uh, gives us this thing, right? Remember, there were, there, were, uh, there were donkeys and there were camels. They were male servants and female servants. We don't know for sure, but later on we're, we're introduced to Hagar, and she's an Egyptian servant. Could be that she was part of this package deal, right? So there's consequences. It's kind of human, isn't it, to um, when life circumstances, things, changes, all that when they come up for us to try to figure out solutions on our own. And sometimes we do that um, and we don't actually do God's things God's way. We forget his promises and his plan and his purpose for us as people and also maybe even as a church. And there, there's consequences to that. It's human to do it. And that's why I'm also thankful that this text doesn't end right here, right? In fact, this account keeps going into to chapter 13 to verse 4. So Abram, he gets kicked out of Egypt. Pharaoh tells him to get out. Actually, have, have some men encourage him along the way to get out. You've got to get out of Egypt. You've got to go. And we don't know, right, if the, if the famine is actually over or not. But they've got to go back. They, they're kicked out of Egypt, so it tells us, that Abram and Sarai and all that he had and Lot, everything with them, they went back and they went into the Negev. And now Abram was rich in livestock and silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place he had made an altar at first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. I love this because that is the gospel, or at least it points to it, right? Abram blew it. He did. He made a, he made a big mistake, and he, he put everything in jeopardy. And yet, God intervened. God rescued. God rescued Abram. God rescued Sarai. He blessed them, and they come back. And where does he go? He goes to the place where it started. And he went to this altar, and there he called on the name of the Lord, Brothers and sisters, that's the gospel. That's what people of faith do. I think that's why Paul in Galatians 3 is saying, look, look what, this is Abram. This is Abraham. This is what he did. 
This is who this man was. And he's a man of faith. Anybody that's a person of faith is a son and daughter of Abram, Abraham. This man who blew this. And what did he do here? He's no hero. He goes back to where it all began. And he calls on the name of the Lord. That's what people of faith do. They recognize that within themselves, there is no hope. Except that in Christ. And in Christ is all of our hope. Followers of Christ, we may not go back to the, an altar like Abram and call the name of the Lord, but we go back to the cross, we go back to the empty tomb, we come to the table, and we cry out in the name of the Lord because we know who we are. There's a sense of humility and joy in this because I know that it doesn't depend on me. Abram's faith was not in himself. Abram's faith was in the Lord and in God's righteousness and God's purposes and God's plan. I'd like to say that this is the last time we will see him screw up, but it is not. And the powerful thing in this story is how it points us to this hope. This, the only hope we have is in Jesus. This only hope we have is that we can return to the Lord no matter what. And God will meet us there. That's what Genesis tells us here about Abram and Sarai. Abram did the next right thing. He turned and went back to the altar called on the name of the Lord. I want to invite you all to do the same thing. Maybe there's places in your life that you know that you've tried to make, uh, you've tried to solve everything on your own and you've maybe given lip service to doing things God's way, but you know that you haven't. This is a great moment to turn back. Turn back to the cross, turn back to the resurrection, turn back to the one who loves you and is faithful even when we're not. Let me pray and ask the Lord to help us. Gracious God, we bow our hearts before you, knowing full well how desperate we are for you to help us. And so, Lord, we pray, help us. Help us to turn away from our foolish solutions and depend solely upon your word. Depend solely upon your spirit to lead us. Help us not to be overwhelmed by life changes or circumstances, so much so that we forget your promises and your plan and your purpose for us. Lord, help us. I ask this in the powerful and the awesome name of Jesus. Amen.